Do you hate talking about money because it's evil or because you think it's scary? Or do you hate talking about money because there's never enough of it? These are questions that we're going to delve into on today's The Ethical Rainmaker Minisode, a special series of little bites in between seasons. I'm Michelle Shirin Muir, your host, and it's part of my desire and effort to bring zero-cost info, case studies, inspiration to basically everyone in the third sector, but especially to those of us who realize that we've been complicit in problematic practices and philosophies and those of us who want to do better. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support this work, find us on Patreon. Today's topic is emotions and money, or how do we stop our emotions from sabotaging our community's needs? And today I'm joined by my friend Stacey Wynn, a communications consultant for many nonprofits, a journalist, the former editor and creator of the community-centric fundraising content hub, and a social media manager for The Ethical Rainmaker. And Stacey and I are going to chat about the emotions that sabotage us and get in the way of our community's needs when we're thinking about money. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Stacey. Thank you for doing this with me. I'm thrilled. I'm super thrilled to talk about money. It's one of my favorite topics. You like talking about money and you're one of the few people I know that will. Yeah. Like if I'm going to have a conversation about money and I need to have like an honest- You come running to me. Yeah. If I, if I need to have an honest, explicit conversation about money, there are like three people I can talk to yeah. that are not in the world of fundraising. Well, I am okay talking about money because, I mean, you know what you're familiar with. And my parents are very comfortable talking about money. And they talk about it from a non-emotional place for the most part. It's kind of like money is a tool. This is how money works. This is what an interest rate is. This is how logistically you do it. And I feel like a lot of folks kind of are not able to have that kind of conversation because they hold so much emotion and specifically shame around money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing part of your family's story because it's been really interesting, you know, in our friendship to be learning that you just got to learn about money like that, which is awesome. And I feel like so few of us get to learn about money as a tool. Mm-hmm. And that's what it really is. But it makes such a huge difference in our lives that, yeah, you're right. We're saddled with emotions in the profession of fundraising and in nonprofits in general. We certainly continue to bring those narratives that we haven't analyzed or like talk through or processed mm-hmm. into our work with us. Even and fundraisers, because I imagine I my my like the way I think of fundraisers, they're experts, right? They should be the people that are really, really great at talking about money and it costs them nothing. I think fundraisers specifically, you know, many of us landed in this profession because there was something crazy that happened in our lives and we were like, shit, nobody's doing anything about this. Or this one organization is the only one doing something about this. Or like, I want to belong to this community of people, but we're under-resourced and, you know, we really need more resources. So a lot of people did it out of a sense of, I don't know, justice, I guess, justice, Mm -hmm. injustice, or a sense of powerlessness and wanting to do something about it, or a sense of camaraderie and community. A lot of people get into fundraising that way. But I think that it comes with its own, you know, we all come with our own issues that we learned. And we just, we don't talk about money Um, just like we, in some circles, don't talk about politics in some circles, we don't talk about sex, Mm -hmm. but we really don't talk about money more than we don't talk about anything else. And I think, you know, that makes a huge difference for how much, how little we've processed, whatever shit we've gone through, whatever stories we've learned. Well, you know, now that I think about it, I guess like my assumption is that a fundraiser's job literally 24 seven a day is just like, yo, can I have some money? Like you're going around to people saying, yo, can I have some money? But that's actually not what fundraisers do. Run fundraisers are, they're so, it's like such a diverse job. You can be working on databases, you can be like organizing an event and you never have to be like, yo, can I have some money? 
Yeah, I mean, it's true. Fundraising is a diverse profession, lots of different types of roles one can play. But also for those of us, like, for example, I love individual fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I like to make an ask. But what I like the most about fundraising is relationship building. I think one of my um, casual nicknames is the connectress, right? Mm -hmm. And like the connectress <laughs> could probably be the nickname of other people in fundraising as well. It's definitely in a non-fundraising crowd that that's my nickname. But like, I love connecting with people. I love networking. I love connecting people who need something with people who have the thing, right? Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be money. But for me, fundraising can feel joyful because if we're doing it correctly, if we're doing it well, it should be coming from a place of shared interest. Mm -hmm. So we have a shared interest in justice or we have a shared interest in the local animal shelter, you know, and love of dogs or something. But like we have shared interests and we should be able to joyfully move whatever resources are needed through community. Mm -hmm. Well, in an ideal wor world, that's how it would work. Yeah. But yeah. I think yeah. in a realistic world, how does it actually work? So how are our baggages with money kind of sabotaging the work that we do as fundraisers? Here are two examples that come from the nonprofit sphere. Two executive directors that I know, both of them grew up having housing instability, housing insecurity. Both of them grew up with parents who you know, like Marina, Marina Martinez-Bateman and I had explained in our episode together about toxic productivity, parents who just like were trying their best and really just couldn't get it together, right? And these people both had, you know, financial insecurity as well. These people both became executive directors of nonprofits mm -hmm. doing really cool, badass work, serving the communities they came from. Mm -hmm. Growing up with these similar intersections, one executive director in conversation discovered that they, because there was never enough money, they decided that, you know, in life, as well as at their organization, when you've got it, you spend it, resource yourself as well as you can now, because you don't know when the next, you don't know mm -hmm. when the next paycheck's coming. You don't know when the next donation's coming. So get everything you need now, stock up, right? Mm -hmm. And that includes staff, which means that you, you know, and there are issues with that too. And then the other executive director with similar background, they thought, I don't have enough money. I better save every penny. You know, I better mm, okay. save every penny for that rainy day. A lot of people can kind of jive or resonate with one of those two stories, right? The opposite right. ends of the spectrum, spend everything, spend nothing. A lot of like money is the number one thing people get divorced over, right? Like these narratives are alive for us based on whatever it is that we learned when we were growing up, whatever experiences we had, like these two folks who I'm describing. Mm -hmm. But in conversation, what that meant at those nonprofits was the executive director who spent everything whenever they had it, because you never know when you're going to, when the next one's coming, they went through staff really quickly, both because mm. staff burned out, there was a lot of turnover, um, or they would hire folks and then have to lay them off because there wasn't anything in savings to be able to maintain them through that next month of employment, right? Yeah. So Yikes. they had, yeah, they had the resources that they needed at a given moment, but they weren't able to create something that felt truly sustainable. And then, you know, the other side, you know, for the other executive director is, you know, save everything. Well, what happens on that rainy day? You never find it because what is the rainy day? And mm. so yeah. they may have, um, you know, some savings now, but they're not expanding their programs. They're not taking the risks that nonprofits sometimes need to take in order to serve their community to the, to the community's max. And so, you know, we also see this in nonprofits, nonprofits that make, some amount of money and save it and then just like keep building, building, building. I have, I have a lot of feelings also about 
you know, endowments and things like that, that just last forever and big foundations that never sunset and keep all of their money. I think there's some amount of financial hoarding that can happen Mm -hmm. that keeps money from circulating in our systems. And part of that, again, is also emotional narratives. What is balance? What does that look like? What is healthy? Well, I love this. (laughs) I love this um, thing that my friend Michelle Johnson said the other day, which is, as soon as you do your analysis of where your own emotional issues are around money, then you have to leave that at the door before mm-hmm. you walk into something. And actually, I've done a lot of workshops around our emotional narratives around money, asking questions like, you know, what are those stories that you are tied to? Like, what did you learn when you were growing up from your family? What life events happened that had you learned some lesson that may or may not be a real lesson, you know, but to, but to you, it lives as a narrative you know, that you're, you're kind of stuck to. And then, you know, if you have kids, what money lessons are you teaching them? A lot of people also discover, for example, in their romantic relationships and partnerships, maybe in their business partnerships, or maybe when they're raising kids, they discover some of these narratives as well. Oh, shoot. I didn't realize I'm saying exactly what my mom said, which is nothing. She said nothing about money. I have no information about money. I'm making decisions Mm -hmm. in a vacuum or like what you're saying, which is, my parents used money as a tool. They taught us about the tool. They taught us about how to be, you know, how to be smart about it. And they gave us an education about it and we know how to use it now. So just learning what you know and don't know, learning where your analysis lies helps you identify when you're biased against or for something. So you say that there's like, there's not like necessarily a perfect balance. I mean, there's not necessarily like, oh, in order to do this, you know, well, you do A, B, C, and D. You're saying it's very individualistic and that you just always have to keep checking in. I know that I grew up in a household where, um, and I've given a talk about this before, so my parents won't be embarrassed, but my dad was a like spend it while you have it person, you know, and my mom was a save everything Okay. Person. And who ran so the, I grew who, up, I'm sorry, who ran the household financially then? My mom. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I mean, it is and it isn't, right? But it is that it is actually it benefited us uh, immensely. And we also didn't talk about money. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that we ever heard about money is save it or you know, or spend it, life is too short, right? Mm-hmm. But we didn't we didn't learn about money as a tool. We didn't learn our parents' narratives were too different. And there was probably, mm-hmm. I mean, they are still married <laughs> to this day. Um, and I think it's been, I think it's been almost 40 years, honestly, but they weren't agreed on how they would teach kids about money. So it just didn't happen. Um, the, we only got narratives about making sure to never have debt and things mm-hmm. that are not actually that helpful. And so how does that show up in nonprofits? So say you were the e- you are the ED of an organization yeah, and then you bring your own kind of baggage to it. How do you stop yourself from doing that? I mean, you alluded to it, but can you kind of yeah. like give us a little bit more information? Like what are ways that we can look out for these things? I think number one is really having an analysis, really doing that processing, whether you process with a friend, whether you process with your colleagues, which I would personally recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done workshops with boards of directors or people who mm-hmm. need to fundraise together to really uncover what is the resistance. There's often resistance. Fundraisers yeah. working in-house will often feel, they'll often feel belittled by colleagues or by the board, et cetera. They'll often be kind of, ignored or like folks will be hot and cold towards them, even though, again, fundraisers usually have really like lovely, charming personalities. They're usually Mm -hmm. likable. You know, it's like your most likable character in a shop often. And like, that's, you know, it's, it's a personality and a function. Wait, why are they, I'm sorry, why are they belittled and ignored in a certain circumstance? I would say that's because there's a resistance to our own narratives around money. 
And so, for example, like the idea that money is evil or money Mm -hmm. is dirty means that, you know, folks will behave a certain way about the people who are raising the money or around the people Ah. who are raising the money or be cold or cut off when, you know, the person Mm -hmm. raising the money um, or in charge of, you know, developing the strategies around that execution of raising money for a nonprofit for a cause are Mm -hmm. belittled, ignored, not resourced very well. You'll often see, um, and this is maybe no longer the case now that our numbers just keep dwindling and dwindling. We're finally getting paid more because it's harder to find us. Scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, when I was coming up, fundraising was the worst paid position, mm-hmm. at, you know, at an organization it was often the worst paid position. And that's, again, another manifestation of how wow. we don't value, you know, we don't want to value or look at where we want to, we want to consider money to be dirty or evil, or there's something wrong with it. A lot of us grew up with those narratives. And so those uh-huh. narratives show up in a fundraising shop within a nonprofit. It also shows up, you know, when we're thinking about asking. Yeah. So when we're thinking about asking, Again, I I tend to think of asking as something that's joyful. Like you and I both share a lot in common. We have a lot of values in common. I would say that, you know, you and I both love dogs. Like we could choose that. Or maybe you and I both come from uh, non-Christian households, right? So -hmm. you and I have something in common already. We have an affinity just based on that one tiny identity. You and I have a lot more in common than that. But like, Oh, we, we believe in supporting artists. We believe in supporting small businesses. We believe in supporting handmade things. Right. So Mm -hmm. we have all these things in common. If I invite you to join me in something that you also have in common, like it shouldn't be extractive. Hopefully you wouldn't feel extracted from, hopefully you would feel like invited to. Mm -hmm. Right. But so, so often in fundraising, and asking for money, folks make the mistake of thinking that fundraising is extractive. It can be. But not if we're doing it in a relationship-based way. So hopefully if I have a relationship with you and I ask you to, you know, support a cause that we both believe in, hopefully Mm -hmm. you would feel free to say yes or no, but you wouldn't be offended or you wouldn't feel Mm -hmm. extracted from. And I think that's one of the biggest fears folks have. I think like a lot of times people equate like fundraising to like sales, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people equate fundraising to sales and some fundraisers equate fundraising to sales too. And you, I mean, fundraising attracts folks who, you know, love to build relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. Some folks are competitive, some aren't, you know, some are doing it because it's fun. Some are doing it because they are, you know, believe passionately in the mission. But yeah, I think fundraisers have a bad rap, but that bad rap is not about fundraising. That bad rap is about the narratives that people Mm -hmm. carry personally with them. Well, Michelle, as a pro fundraiser, and can you give some advice right now to someone who's new, you know, in the sector and who is very, very uncomfortable asking, making the ask or talking about money or having these discussions? What is your advice to them to kind of like, you know, do the analysis or start to do the analysis. I just finished writing some curriculum for a local nonprofit around this very topic because I have often done, you know, workshops around it. And the workshops, again, are centered around just a few central questions that you can explore with friends or with colleagues if you feel like you have a trusting relationship with those folks. And the questions really are around what your what what lessons you learned when you were a kid what did your parents teach you or whoever was was your caregiver what did they teach you what carries over now from that time what other things happened in your life like did you go through a divorce you know what happened financially when you maybe had a child like what happened financially when you left college um, and took on student debt whatever it is 
Um, what happened when you got in that car accident or took on medical debt, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these things affect us. And then we, we, we discern some stories. We extract stories from these experiences that we had. And the stories may not actually track to reality, but it was our lived reality at that moment um, was like maybe a story like there's never enough money. I'm never going to get out of this debt, right? Or wow, like people will really burn you with money, like in this divorce I'm going through. So mm-hmm. never trust anyone else with money. You know, like there's this, we learn all kinds of things. So really having conversations with people that you feel safe around about what those stories are and then connecting them to the present. How is that story? Is that story affecting your life now? And then really taking the time to think about in what ways might it be affecting your life? Like for my two friends who are executive directors at different organizations, it was a conversation that we had the three of us on a walk together that we had that kind of brought to light some of the the decisions that they were making based on these old narratives and how it was damaging their organizations. But it really is through connection and conversation and analysis where we can unpack what we're doing, the biases that we carry. And we may not be able to eradicate our biases, but we certainly can be aware of those biases when we're approaching things like fundraising or talking about money. So we're at the end of our (laughs) mini-sode. It's game time. Would you rather tell your ex what you think their money issues are and how they should get right? Or would you rather tell your parents what you think their issues with money are and how they should get right? Oh, man, I already did number two. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so your choice is number two. Yeah, quick story. Yeah. My parents were living in Iran. They were living in Tehran. This is back in the day story. Back in the day story. The U.S.-backed revolution happened where everything in the country changed overnight. My parents had to leave in the middle of the night on a a plane with one suitcase, you know, never got to, my mom never got to see some of her relatives again. It was really dramatic. So 30 years later, fast forward, it's like, I don't know, 2011. Mm -hmm. I'm working at Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. And I look on Facebook and I see that my uncle, who normally lives in Tehran, is mm-hmm. in Spain. He's in Barcelona. And I reach mm-hmm. out to my mom. I call her. I'm like at work and I see this and I call her and I'm like, mom, did you know that he's in Barcelona? Can you believe it? And she was like, oh yeah, yeah, I knew. And I was like, what do you mean you knew? You haven't seen him in 30 years. Why aren't you in Barcelona? Because our family doesn't feel comfortable going back to Iran, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of Iranians can't actually leave Iran. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lit- litany of um, political, financial, you know, mostly political reasons that folks are not allowed to leave. And so my family is not able to go and leave the country and come and visit us, right? Um, Both for Iranian reasons and for U.S. reasons. So it was a big deal. He was in Barcelona. That was like a big opportunity. A big opportunity. We totally could go there at any moment, right? I had just been to Spain the year before for the first time, and I was like thrilled at the idea of going back. Mm -hmm. And my mom said, oh, thanks, honey. It's too expensive. I called my dad and he was like, yep, let's go. Let's spend it. Right. Cause his, his narrative yeah. is like, spend it. And he knows what his narrative is. And he's been aware yeah. of that. Right. He, well, he was that handy he in that moment. Before. He was very handy. He pushed. He was, he was. Right. He pushed. Um, he was on board. My mom, you know, I spent like two hours on the phone with her. And then like, I spent more time when I got home from work that, you know, like I just, I was working on it, working on it. And couldn't get past the narrative until I went over to their house, like 40 minutes away, sat there, had dinner. And then it was like, I don't know, 11 p.m. And this would have been like noon or something when I just oh got to Barcelona. And you I'm there the like, yeah, yeah, I put it, I put it, that was more work than I'd ever put into persuading anybody about anything. But I wanted my mom to see her brother. So, and so did it happen? 
Yeah, eventually it happened. But what happened was my mom had to uncover her narratives. And her narrative Ah. was, I'm afraid of leaving you and your sister with Mm -hmm. debt from my death one day. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spend any money because I don't want you to be saddled with the burden of debt. Gotcha. And so we went through... Um, you know, the reality of what a trip to Spain would cost, whether you did it like on the cheap um, in Mm -hmm. the middle or like did the like five star version. And in any of those scenarios, basically like a 10 day trip to Spain is still less expensive than like one day in hospice care. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we had that conversation and um, I threatened her with you never know when someone's going to pass. You know, I like pulled out all the stops. It was pretty ugly. (laughs) And also she still thanks me to this day because we went. So I got to go meet him. They got to see each other for the first time in 30 years. And it was incredible, but it was all about emotional narratives. And so, yeah. I love that story. That's beautiful. And that's it for the Ethical Rainmaker mini-sode. This podcast is run by a team of rad people, including Stacey Wynn, who's with us today, Juliana Mayo, Jordan Heathcote, Coco Decker, and of course, me. Help us bring more content to you by joining our mailing list. Follow us on socials and of course, financially support us on Patreon. Don't let your homies miss out. Share this pod wherever you can. I've heard it's being used in universities as curriculum. I get mail all the time. It's amazing. So please just keep sharing it. And thank you to our newest homies on Patreon. If you want to start a conversation about anything from speaking gigs to consulting to the next podcast episode, just drop us a line at hello at the And I'm Gold is the song that plays on this and every episode by Trick Candles, which you can find on Bandcamp. Till next time.